Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Long COVID, US-China relations, a shift to greener energy policies, digital acceleration, and the risk of missing the post-COVID rebound. These are the top five risks for global business that Control Risks has identified this year. Think of them, if you will, as a set of lenses with which to view where we're headed. Today's episode is one of a five-part series in which we'll be exploring the regional impact of these global top five risks. And in this episode, we're turning our attention to Asia Pacific. The Asia Pacific region has in many ways handled the pandemic more decisively and effectively than a lot of other regions. With the global influence of the US in a rebuilding period, to put it mildly, The pandemic is just one of many arenas in which power is being reshuffled in Asia-Pacific and perhaps even towards Asia-Pacific. With me to discuss the impact and the nuance of Control Risk's top five for 2021 in the APAC region are two of my colleagues. Steve Wilford is based in Singapore, and is a partner in Control Risk's Global Risk Analysis team. Steve, you're a newcomer to the Global Insight. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Nice to be here. Jim Fitzsimmons is also based in Singapore and is a principal in our cybersecurity consultancy team. Jim is also a newcomer to the podcast. Jim, nice to have you on board. Very happy to be here, Chuck. Jim, Steve, let's just open it up and talk a little bit about risk number one in the top five, which was all about this sort of long COVID, the lingering symptoms of the disease that are found not just in the human body, but also in the body politic. Give us a perspective from Asia Pacific and how things have gone there. Lingering in the body politic, Chuck, I like that. We're, we're working it here, Steve. <laughs> um, you said in your, your, your eloquent intro that Asia Pacific has weathered this pandemic so much better than, than most other places. That's a fairly blanket statement, if you don't mind me saying so, Mr. Hecker. I know why you're saying it, because it's been led by a few very important standouts like China, to a lesser extent, you know, the South Koreas, the Taiwans, the Singapores. True statement. But there's a lot of other parts of Asia that have fared far less well and are actually behind other parts of the world. I mean, if you think about Indonesia, it's the world's fourth biggest country, right? It has no approach to pandemic management. You know, that's really not an exaggeration. If you think about India, the world's biggest country by population, you know, it's had a terrible time of it. Its economy has been shattered by the pandemic and it's only just coming back. But I think you are right and you can make a blanket statement about the rebound from the pandemic across the region being, broadly speaking, a more rapid one than elsewhere in the world. Steve, the other thing about making broad statements is everything in life is relative and from the perspective here in London and in the immediate surroundings here. And then if we go a little bit further west to the United States, it's easier from this perspective to see how much better parts of Asia are doing than a lot of the rest of the world. Jim, would you agree with that? You know, Tell us your view on how things are going. 
for certainly the more developed parts of Asia. It's something that's seen as a tremendous inconvenience with a big economic impact, but people see the light at the end of the tunnel. But Steve makes a really, really good point about the rest of Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia, Myanmar. These are large, complex societies that the impact of this, I think, is going to be much more dramatic in the long tail than than it is now, because these are places that they rely on remittances. They have economies that are really focused more around natural resources, which the demand cycle for those has changed as well. So it's a mixed bag. And I think like any place else in the world. Guys, one of the things that the top risk posits is that there are going to be have and have not countries as we roll out the vaccine. So there'll be countries with lots of vaccine and they will bounce back quickly. There'll be countries with very little vaccine, and they're going to be really stuck in the pandemic for longer, and that some countries will thrive, and that other countries may really go to the wall, sort of politically and economically. What's your view on on who sits where in your part of the world? If I'm counting on my fingers, I think there's six or seven jurisdictions in Asia-Pac that claim to have enough vaccine to do the whole of that population. China, probably, although they're not saying and then you have the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Australians, Singaporeans, etc. You know, all the usual suspects. You know, beyond that, a lot of jurisdictions are relying on the, the COVAX system, which, as we know, is only going to cover 20 to 30 percent of, of these populations in the first instance. And then, you know, just to go back to my slightly gloomy beginning, I'm going to get gloomier still, if I may, and say that don't let's not forget that in, in parts of the Asia-Pacific region, on some of the borderlands of Pakistan, Afghanistan, those are the sumps of chronic diseases that have been eradicated elsewhere in the world, like polio, for example. And I suspect we might see sumps of constant pandemic that could potentially mutate and pose risks in the, in the future. You know, you're absolutely right. The spread is huge coming out of it. The spread is right from cutting edge, first world, got it all, dealt with it fantastically, got the kit to get out of it. Second half of the economy is already going to be booming to jurisdictions that are going to be decimated by this in 2021, 2022, 2023, and on. And the other thing is that what's the point of being the winner when you're surrounded by countries that are losers? That puts you in a situation where... Can we import things? Can we import labor? Can we import materials? We're very fortunate in Singapore that, you know, it's a place, it's small and it's a, it's a very efficient government. So they've kind of managed this stuff very, very well. But if we're surrounded by like Indonesia, where the situation is, is much more extreme, you know, it, it, we may, we may be able to go places, but, you know, it doesn't really matter because they don't want us there because they're more concerned about managing their own issues. Jim, that's a really good point. And we're seeing echoes of that here in Europe where the EU has already launched its vaccination program. But if the countries bordering the EU are not vaccinating, then what good is it? Let's move on to our number two risk. And, and this is a fantastic one to discuss because of, you know, precisely because we have you on the line, where we talk about the US-China rivalry. And, you know, what we're saying about this is, you know, naturally, this is a concern for companies based in China. This is a concern for companies based in the United States. But really, what this rivalry does is produce an awful lot of collateral damage for everybody else. Take us through your view as front row observers of what's happening between the United States and China. Well, look, I mean, we're coming out of four years where the relationship hasn't been this bad since, I don't know, 1968. For me, I don't see this as being necessarily a game of winners and losers. But the problem is, is that all the players look at it this way. Both societies, they look at technology as this is our means of development. This is our means of advancement, especially in China. 
as a society, they're really, really committed to using technology, both in their political governance, but also in terms of developing their society to get out of that middle income trap to become really a, a truly rich, wealthy country. Now, the problem in that is that rise is being seen in the United States as a threat. It's a threat to America's position. It's a threat to America's relationships in, in the region and indeed threats to American technology. And all of our clients who are looking at China, most of them are there for the long term. And whereas once they were sourcing from China, now they're selling to China. So for them, they're not really concerned about what the, what the future trend of it is. They're more concerned about what can we do now? And the United States, it's, it's hopefully it'll be better under Biden. But the way it seems for the past four years, just the, the level of fear and the level of sort of assumptions and presumptions around what China's goals are and, and, and indeed what China's doing, it doesn't seem to me to be practical. Let me put it that way. There is one area, you, you know, where I see these two guys dancing on the stage together, and that's on climate change. That is a touch point where I think they're both very aligned. It's all about multilateralism. Biden's step to rejoin the Paris Accord chimes with China's agenda. Xi Jinping did a very interesting speech on the 25th of January at Davos virtually, which was very focused on China's role in climate change. Now, beyond that, we are in for a relatively rough ride. The animosity is hard-baked in Washington. It is bipartisan. The delivery system might look a little bit different. It will be more predictable. You won't have to check your Twitter feed in the middle of the night to know what the status of US foreign policy is. But nevertheless, there is going to be quite a high degree of animus there, which carries over from the Trump administration. And just before you completely contradict me, Jim, China is not a passive actor in all of this. I mean, the thousands of podcasts that we all listen to about U.S.-China relations, the headlines that we read in the papers, it's all U.S. acts, China reacts. Going back to that speech I mentioned, it was actually interesting from the point of view that that's Xi Jinping's first speech in the Biden era. And it really laid out a very strong stall around multilateralism, China really revving up its presence in international institutions. I'm far from the whole narrative about China being a spoiler and the grumpy kid at the back of the class and wanting to wreck these institutions. It just wants to own them. I mean, it's creating a few of its own, yes, but it also wants to dominate the existing ones. It wants its place in the sun. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's often overlooked. And I think you are going to see in the year ahead, because this is what we are talking about the next 12 months, a much more proactive China has to be. It has to be much more proactive in order to counteract what we were just talking about in terms of the Biden effect. Fair point. And, and, and I think I've blithered a bit on, on the point I really wanted to make, but it's data, right? So I was reading something that was in, in foreign policy and it was all about how the Chinese are stealing data, be it personal data in TikTok, some kind of nebulous data that companies have. And the problem that I have with that is I help companies manage and secure their information. And data is just a word. So when I think about this and I think about the context of this relationship, it's not necessarily so rationally driven because when I break it down, you can look at IP risk and that's real. And that's something you should be concerned about, right? You could look at the risk around personal data, which, you know, which we think over here is really all about national security issues, right? And that's a real issue. When I see the level of rhetoric that goes back and forth about this stuff, it's always stuff will get stolen. And really... That's not a useful practical analysis that a company that's going to be operating in China has to look at because it's the second biggest national economy in the world. And it has many, many challenges. It's a very dynamic and entrepreneurial environment, but it's also it's a very high risk cybersecurity environment. And so you need to balance these things to do it. And so kind of the tenor and, and, and the direction from certainly the Trump administration for the last four years, it's not helping those companies achieve what they want to achieve. Right. The bigger questions around the supply chain, around technology, 
that's where, again, look, many, many years ago, I did some work for the U.S. government. They want to make sure that any systems that are going to be in that kind of office will be vetted and approved and reviewed. China's doing the same thing now. All the countries in the world are going to be doing the same thing soon enough. That's the direction. Steve, I want to say thank you for setting me up perfectly to move into the third risk because you raised the green issue as an area of cooperation between the U.S. and China and with you know countries and companies all around the world. And the perspective here is that countries and companies are tripping over each other to make declarations about carbon neutral policies and practices and the green recovery and building back better. Again, on this topic, are Singapore-based private equity houses you know, drooling over the opportunity to invest in solar panel manufacturers? Well, there's a very simple answer to that question, and the answer is yes. But, you know, environmentally focused investing in this region takes most of its cues, if I'm honest, from European and to a lesser extent US examples. But this region is the world's number one investment destination. And with investment comes ideas. And the whole mantra of ESG investing has gone from a, sorry, I'm going to have to look that up moment. And that's probably only six months ago here to something that everybody's fully cognizant of. Everybody's factoring it into how they think about valuing assets. And a lot of our clients are, are, are asking for that focus to be put into all the deals that they're examining in the region. That's everything from, you know, the big European, US pension funds, etc., who have quite a high ethical benchmark, right down to guys trying to invest in supermarkets. And obviously, there's a huge commodity sector here, which for a few years has been on the front lines of ethical investing. So that's very much a topic of conversation that's really exploded upon us really quite quickly. What do you think about places like Malaysia or Indonesia, where so much of their, their exports are around products, palm oil, 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 that, you know, either the market's changing or the regulatory environment in their destination markets are changing? How could that affect some of those countries and some of those governments moving forward? Indonesia, I think they just went through their elections, but, you know, Malaysia is going through a kind of a dicey time right now with their politics. That sector comes in for a lot of flack, and it has done for a lot of years, actually because of that, because of the NGO scrutiny, because of the consumer backlashes against some of the practices surrounding rainforest destruction, etc., for palm oil. That's been, if you like, in some areas at the forefront of ethical investing. It cuts really in two distinct ways. I think you have the companies out there that are just playing fast and loose with it, if they even engage with the language of it at all, and they are increasingly getting found out, and they're increasingly getting prosecuted directly by regulators for you know labor rights abuses and stuff like that. The extraterritoriality of this is coming home to roost in Asia. That's that group. And then actually, there's a, a significant group that's often overlooked of local conglomerates that really see the value proposition in engaging with this and trying to assume higher levels of compliance and really slot in with some of the peak organizations uh, consuming palm oil, et cetera, fishery products, et cetera, that are trying to trying to reform the sector. And, they, you know, there's, a, there's an increasing number of those because they see the direction that this is going in. But it's still really fought over. You're not wrong, Jim. It's really fought over territory. There's a lot of shoddy practice out there, but there are some good ones, too. When we published Risk Map and we put all the information out on the website in the, in the big release a couple of weeks ago, what we had to say about cyber 
generated quite a lot of questions from our clients and already quite a lot of, of feedback and response. And companies want to know about the future of cyber. They want to know about what to do about hardware. They want to know what to do about software. They want to know, just as you pointed out earlier, the nuances around data. And also this idea that, you know, last year, a lot of companies did a five-year plan in five weeks, but there's no slowing down anymore. So tell us a little bit about your view in general on cyber risks going forward, a little bit about cyber risks in your part of the world. Where we are now, it's around mobility in the cloud. And that's all around the world. And this region is a laggard compared to certainly the United States, which is at the forefront of this kind of technology, but even to a lesser extent, Western Europe. So we see this and it's happening here, but it's happening in a way that it's very, very different. To the extent that people focus as an individual using on their phones is one thing. But when they go to the office, they sit down in front of a conventional computer and do things in a conventional way. That aspect of, of how society has changed is one thing, but business here is, is still a little bit farther behind. And the risks that are behind that are sort of, again, sort of more traditional risks. But when we look forward, we see things about how technology and how companies are operating where it's not everything is in-house anymore. You're not building big walls anymore. You are at home. COVID has really driven a, a really a fundamental change in how people work with each other as, as individuals, but also how people use technology. It hasn't necessarily lowered risk or raised risk, but the risk has manifested itself in a different way. The future is that you can't manage all your own risks anymore, and you need to start thinking about how can you manage these third and indeed fourth party risks so you don't get bit by them. Technology all across the world is becoming a central aspect of how businesses operate. It's a little bit less developed in APAC than you would see in other parts of the world, but the curve is the same curve. Right. And all the big foreign, you know, cloud providers that are enabling this are all coming to this region. It's the next boom. However, with that comes risk. And the risk is changing in a way that companies operating here are not quite aware of. The long and short of it is, is that same problem, different place, but perhaps more acute. Well, I mean, as Jim likes to say, I think Asia is really transitioning away from the simple concept of data nationalism to the whole concept of digital sovereignty. This comes back to the inadvertent soft power from China, in my opinion, actually. You know, China tries so hard to get the rest of the world to think like it and just like it. Ironically, where it's been most successful has been in the realm of cyberspace, where it's not that interested in passing on its ideas to the rest of the world at all. But, you know, a lot of jurisdictions in Southeast Asia have really picked up many of its concepts of cyberspace and run with them. And that's not just about controlling info at home, along the nationalism lines, that's all about the nature of the content, the type of delivery systems, how the platforms work, all that kind of stuff. And Southeast Asia is deeply fascinated by the way that China is doing it and gets a lot of its cues from, dare I say it, from Singapore to Vietnam to Thailand to the Philippines. They're getting a lot of their ideas out of China. Whilst our cyber risk is kind of from the vulnerabilities of systems to hack or whatever, because we've rushed things in COVID. I think what's also rushing is regulatory risk in this area and the vulnerability that companies are going to face as they come out of this, because we've all been distracted, we're just hanging on, and the regulators have been busy. That's only moving in one direction. It goes back to some of the things we were talking about around the United States and China. The United States historically has had a laissez-faire approach to technology, and people think of the internet as this separate thing, like this supranational idea of technology 
and it can you know go anywhere and do anything and all these amazing things and you can't stop it, you can't block it. In 1949, when the People's Republic of China was established, one of the first things they did was establish control over media. At that time, radio, newspapers, the internet in a Chinese context has just been another medium, another medium of mass communication that is regulated. And this has gone in fits and starts as, as technology is, has expanded in China. But what's interesting to look at it is that they have also looked upon this in a national security context. Now, if you look at the United States and problems around elections, problems around misinformation and disinformation, problems around how do we protect our, our people's information? Well, China has a model for that. And Steve, you touched on this earlier. That's not to say that China's model is, is better or worse, but they've looked at this and they've established how they want to mitigate that risk. We've seen in Europe, they look at personal data risk and they have a construct for that to manage that risk. It's called GDPR, right? The General Data Protection Regulations. But there is no equivalent in the United States. So when Trump has the TikTok shutdowns and, 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 and you know, he tries to, to ban the WeChat apps, the problem he has is that he's on very flimsy grounds because in a democratic society, he can't just by fiat shut those things down. The risk that we posit at number five is that there is a risk that companies are still so stuck in crisis management mode, understandably in many cases, that when the economy finally starts to turn around and pick up, and, and it's forecast in the second half of the year to pick up quite dramatically, there's the risk that companies will miss the opportunity. You know, some companies are back at cruising altitude and, and ready to go. Other companies just seem to still be running just to stand still. What's it look like in Asia Pacific? Are there companies, you know, you guys have been right in at the, at the ground level in all of our clients and all of these companies that, as they've been managing this almost career defining crisis in 2020, which of them are ready for the upswing and why and which of them aren't? The winners in this race are going to be the companies that did three principal things. First of all, they always understood the importance of tactics. So going into COVID, which is very day-to-day, -day, very immediate, very rapid action in terms of, you know, redirecting your product, shutting down, opening up elements of supply chain, so on and so forth. Those companies are probably already quite clear in, in, in having proved their mettle there. The real winners, though, always kept a strategic perspective. So they're thinking about what potentially does this whole pandemic mean? You know, a lot of companies, the discourse is just reversion. And there's not going to be a reversion. There's not going to be a, a return to what went before. It's going to be something quite different. And the companies that are thinking the hardest about how the world has changed, to go back to just how the environmental issues, they're not just gathering momentum, those issues. They've been profoundly changed by the pandemic and the importance of getting on the right side of history on the climate crisis, just as one example, has really accelerated. And companies that get that are companies that are going to win. That's just a single example. There's other areas like let's take risk number two, you know, the US, the US-China face-off. Companies that have invested time and thought into how to navigate this rather than simply ignore it are the ones that are going to win. The really savvy companies that actually don't get drawn in by the tropes on China are also the ones that are going to win. Let's remember in March, what were the headlines saying about China? And now look, China got its act together on pandemic management, but now that's been morphed into 
while China is clearly the new rising superpower. It's almost a superpower risen because it handled this so well. And you can see the, you know, the stretch in terms of how that success is being interpreted. And it tends to ignore huge structural issues in the Chinese economy. It tends to ignore that relative to itself, China ain't doing that well. And so companies that keep that strategic sense of perspective, that kind of distance from the shoutier end of the headlines are the ones that succeed the most. And the third thing is that in order to do those two first things, the tactical and the strategic, you've got to have your eyes open. You've got to have the information coming in. You've got to be monitoring things. You've got to have those lines of communication into, into society, etc., to get that understanding. But also it's about governments, right? So Singapore Airlines, they're going to inoculate everybody, everybody who works for them to make sure that they can serve their customers, right? That's one thing. But also the fact that they're in a country that has the capability to do that is a difference maker versus an Indonesian airline, right? Maybe you don't have the same kind of resources. The same companies that have the ability to get support for their staff so they don't have to lay them off or things like that. It's the state that over time is going to solve this problem. For private industry, the key aspect is to manage, manage, manage in a lean time. One of the things that we talk about in Risk Map is the evolving nature of the relationship between the state and the company and between the public sector and the private sector. And I think the emphasis, and again, you know, not to, not to contradict you, just to add nuance, as we say, the relationship is changing. And I think that the state will have a lot more to say to companies, particularly to companies that took bailouts. But companies are going to have to solve a lot of what's left over when the pandemic is, is in its waning moments. There are governments that had a good pandemic. There are governments that had a really bad pandemic. There are companies that had a good pandemic and that had a bad pandemic. And all of those relationships are going to be different. Government shortcomings, the private sector may have to step in. Private sector shortcomings, the government may start dictating terms. And I think that's going to be one of the interesting things to observe in 2021. Guys, I think we should probably wrap it up. And what I really need to say is Steve and Jim, both in Singapore, massive, massive thanks. Thanks for having us, Chuck. Thanks, Chuck. That's all for this special edition of The Global Insight. Tune in tomorrow for a look at the top five in Africa. You can also visit controlrisks.com for our full Risk Map 2021 forecast, which includes our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year, and the actual map of political and security risks for 2021, which is where the name Risk Map comes from to begin with. Thank you, and bye for now.